0: I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a private equity firm focused on making investments in the cannabis industry. The company considers business opportunities as the legalization of marijuana continues throughout the United States. Some of Privateer's portfolio companies include Leafly, a user-generated reviews website for all things cannabis-related, Tilray, a producer of medical cannabis in British Columbia, Canada, and Marley Natural, a global brand in partnership with the Bob Marley family. The company is located in Seattle, Washington. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Jessica, for having me.
0: I want to talk first about the history of marijuana. When was the first use of marijuana?
1: Oh gosh, you know there are uh, reports of uh, cannabis being used 5,000 years ago in China. So we know it's a, at least um, been used or consumed by humans for 5,000 years.
0: Mm. And where is it best grown?
1: I've been in this industry for about uh, five and a half years, and I've probably met the world's best cannabis grower about a thousand times. Uh, you know every place I go, um, every grower I meet claims to be the best uh, the best grower
0: and what is your opinion? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that there are different um, different products grown well in different parts of the world, so certainly British Columbia has a well known reputation for outdoor grown natural cannabis at very high latitude. You can go to places like Jamaica or India or the the Middle East and cannabis is, is grown and consumed. It's an interesting product in that it is produced all around the world with uh, very different uh, flavors and, and properties, very similar to tea.
0: When was cannabis made illegal in the United States?
1: So it was right around the end of alcohol prohibition in the uh, in the early to mid-1930s, cannabis prohibition uh, started. How come? Well, there's lots of different stories uh around that. Certain people say that it had something to do with uh William Randolph Hearst and uh the use of hemp uh as a newspaper material. He had a lot of investments in the forest uh products industry in on the west coast printing or producing newspaper, as well as some of the petrochemical companies. DuPont is often mentioned many products that can be made with petrochemicals can also be made with hemp. And so there's a theory that, that those two colluded to create cannabis prohibition.
0: And is that your theory as well?
1: You know, I'm not really sure why it was prohibited. I, I do know that many of our investors are, are in this industry, interested in this industry for a financial return, but they're also looking for a social return, a social return measured by ending the harms caused by prohibition.
0: You mentioned your investors and they're really, they really spread across the political spectrum, uh, which is interesting to have those strange bedfellows.
1: One of the misconceptions about this industry is that it's a, a right-left issue, and it's not. So we have investors from the, the far right who see this as a state's rights issue, as an individual civil liberties issue. We have progressive liberals who see this, I see prohibition as a form of discrimination against African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans who are arrested at disproportionate rates for cannabis possession or distribution. In the 1970s, President Nixon declared his war on drugs, and you know, since then, uh, I believe we've spent about two two trillion dollars fighting the war on drugs, and it's had a devastating effect. You know, it causes a lot of harm uh, and at, at tremendous expense. So we incarcerate more people per capita in the United States than anywhere else in the world. You know, recent reports show roughly 800,000 Americans have been arrested prosecuted and are incarcerated for cannabis possession or distribution. Those are people who have lots of different rights taken away from them. Uh, They can't vote. They can't live in public housing. They can't get food stamps. They can't have their educational support through the Department of Education. And so it's it's devastated entire communities in the U.S. and has devastated communities specifically in the African-American and Hispanic-American communities.
0: What are the uses of cannabis that we might not even know outside of, let's say, the medical, the recreational ones? Uh, you smile. How come?
1: I do because there are so many different uses for this product that when you start to talk about it, you sound a little bit crazy. So historically, cannabis and, and hemp were used for things like uh, the sales that Christopher Columbus sailed to America uh, with. Um, used for rope um, on, on sailing ships. The word canvas comes from cannabis. Uh, so uh, on the uh, Canastoga wagons that, that were used for westward migration across the U.S., um, you know, those had hemp fabric covers that you see. Uh, it was grown in, in Jamestown, you know, the earliest colonies, uh, as a, a vital crop. Um, so and grown by early you know, presidents like Jefferson and Washington on their their farms.
0: When we see hemp, like is it all cannabis even now?
1: So it's all it's all cannabis, it's all cannabis sativa. The the main difference is really legal in in the U S. It's a legal distinction between cannabis sativa that has less than point three percent THC. That's defined as hemp. Anything with more than point three percent THC is defined as as cannabis.
0: THC is tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the chemical that uh, recreational users try to uh, extract as they're smoking.
1: Yes, it's really the psychotropic ingredient in cannabis.
0: You mentioned uh, the medical cannabis, and when you were considering starting Privateer, you and your co-founders, Michael Blue and Christian Groh, were researching the benefits of medical cannabis. Can you talk about what, what you discovered, what you found?
1: We entered this industry with a healthy dose of skepticism. and when we talk to to medical patients they use medical cannabis for a wide variety of of reasons so um, I've talked to patients who have cancer and are g- going through chemotherapy oftentimes a second or third round of chemotherapy and the drugs that they used on the first and second round didn't work, um, but they 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 find efficacy in medical cannabis typically used to suppress nausea and stimulate their their appetite. I've talked to Uh, glaucoma patients who uh, use medical cannabis to reduce ocular uh, eye pressure. I've talked to patients who use it for Crohn's disease or multiple sclerosis, Um, talked to patients who uh, use it for pain, and uh, veterans, both in Canada and in the United States, that use medical cannabis for the treatment of, of PTSD.
0: When you started to think about starting Privateer, uh, you were working at Silicon Valley Bank in California. Uh, It was actually Silicon Valley Bank Analytics. Uh, What exactly were you doing for them?
1: So I was the COO of uh, SVB Analytics, and our focus was on uh, providing valuation services to venture capital firms and venture capital backed startups.
0: And one of those startups uh, was an inventory software company for marijuana dispensing. Uh, And can you talk about how you got connected?
1: Sure. So uh, we... I like to say I, I knew a little bit about a lot of different companies. And I could typically place companies in you know, 40 or 50 niches. And one day had a, a medical cannabis technology company from California come into our office. Uh, the bank didn't take them on as a client, but it, it got me thinking about this industry uh, or if there was an industry. And um, later that same week, I happened to be driving from San Francisco to Santa Clara. It's about a one-hour drive and was listening to a uh, a radio show, actually an NPR radio show, talking about California Proposition 19. And I thought, well, this is two data points in a week. I need to look at this industry. What was Proposition 19? It was a full uh, legalization for adult consumption initiative. Uh, that was on the, the California ballot.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a company focused on investing in opportunities related to legal cannabis for medical and recreational use. The company was the first in the cannabis industry to receive institutional capital, helping to legitimize this growing market. The three of you decide to to leave your st- stable jobs. And there was kind of a defining moment when, when you went to a trade show where you were looking at, you know, various people pitching their companies. Can you speak to why that was defining for you?
1: Well, the first 18 months, we were very quiet and no one knew who we were uh, or what we were doing. And so we would we would show up at these uh, events, in, you know, wearing suits, in short haircuts. And you know, I think a lot of people thought we were with the, the DEA. Drug Enforcement Administration. And so we would go to these events. The one you're mentioning was in San Francisco. And we sat towards the front of the room, and we would listen to speaker after speaker. And they were on stage just saying these crazy things that that no one would ever say in any other industry. Like what? oh, you know, they were talking about taking your, this was 2010, 2011. They were talking about taking your, your cannabis company public and how to raise capital. And it was just, it was it was nuts. So we developed this technique where we would sit in the front of the room and anytime anyone said anything crazy, we would, Turn around and look throughout the room to see you know, who had a frown on their face, or who was roll, you know, which people were rolling their eyes, because those were the people that we wanted to talk to, because they they were thinking about this similar to the way that we were thinking about this.
0: It was at that moment where you decided, well, instead of being a venture capital company, we'll be a private equity company. What what did you see as the difference, or what was the shift in focus?
1: That was something that took place over twelve months. You know, we originally thought we were building a venture capital firm that would make passive investments into this industry, and that was our original thesis. And when we went around the world, when we went to various states, we realized that this industry was different. It was a massive opportunity, but uh, there were no companies that were leaders. There were no standards. There were uh, unprofessional companies, unprofessional, unsophisticated managers. The marketing and branding bar was extremely low and it was a taboo industry. So at the time, we we realized we couldn't be passive investors. We needed to be operators. We needed to take hands on control. We needed to build teams. We needed to build relationships with external teams. Uh, You know, everything in this industry is harder. It's more difficult than anyone can possibly imagine. And so we needed to recruit professional people. We needed to recruit professional vendors. You know, hiring a Hiring a law firm, or a marketing firm, or a PR agency—you know—someone to do payroll, or accounting, or auditing—it's easier now, but it was harder uh, back then. And things that you know would take literally a week in any other startup I've been inv- involved with would take three to four months. You know, finding a bank—absolutely a miserable process.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer. We'll hear more from Brendan coming up i I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a private equity firm focused on making investments in the cannabis industry. In the early days, uh, you had a a little motto, uh, which was, don't touch the leaf. Mm -hmm. What does that mean?
1: Well, so, you know, for us, we were... We were uncertain about the regulatory environment in individual US states and uh, federally. We were concerned about the conflict between state and and federal law. We were, we were uncomfortable five years ago touching, touching cannabis in, in the United States. Um, it's one of the reasons why we jumped at the opportunity, uh, with Tilray in, in Canada, because we, we had the ability to operate with a federal license in a large country. Um, that didn't have any of the conflicts between federal and state law.
0: Right, and Tilray being a company that grows and processes and distributes medical marijuana in Canada, but and eventually perhaps globally. So then what is it that you wanted to invest in, uh, if, if not the actual LEAF, if not actual growers in the United States,
1: we were looking primarily at ancillary companies at the beginning, so uh, software companies, um, web companies, app companies, companies that provided infrastructure, so lighting, uh, lighting it, for
0: growth, for growth lighting,
1: sites, lighting for growth facilities, um, hydroponics, anything used to grow the plants. So you know, from containers to packaging, yeah. You know. Um, from really anything used to produce the product from seed to shelf is how we thought about the industry.
0: So these are like second derivative uh, services that were helping to abet the growth of marijuana, but not touching, not, not actually investing in marijuana. I'm
1: not sure bet is the word that I, I would well, use, to but yes, to help yeah. support. Yes. Yeah. A bet has a, yeah, it's, it's a little dangerous. <laughs> you
0: you you mentioned uh, the banks and how challenging it was to work with banks because they didn't want to be associated with cannabis. So how did you manage your Cash.
1: So we we've been fortunate uh, in the United States in individual states and uh, in other countries around the world in that we've always had access to um, banking relationships. So. That doesn't mean that we haven't had difficulties. Uh, our first bank account was shut down, I think, after three months. Uh, our second one, with a very large bank in the U.S., uh, we operated for we operated there for about sixteen months, and then a compliance officer in Cleveland, Ohio, saw me on TV one day, uh, and we received a note, uh, a letter. Saying that we had 30 days to close our account, or they would they would mail us a cashier's check. I think at the time we had about four million dollars in the bank, um, and so we scrambled to to find another another bank in the U.S. and our current bank uh, we've we've had for about three years now, and they they've been fabulous.
0: You had an easier time with the banks to to establish relationships where they are holding your cash, but most other cannabis companies don't have that luxury. How are they managing all this cash in a way that's above board?
1: I've been in a lot of uh, uncomfortable situations in in this industry. Probably the most discomforting uh, environment is to be in a room uh, with a million dollars in cash, or be in a room uh, with two million dollars in cash. It's it's discomforting. Uh, it's smelly, um, and it doesn't feel like a secure environment. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of the larger, more legitimate Operators in places like Washington and, and Colorado have to have to operate. For now, you know they operate on cash. They uh, they pay payroll with cash. They pay their taxes with cash. They pay their rent and or mortgages with cash. And it's just it creates a lot of very very unsafe transactions that that put people in in harm's way.
0: Now, did you benefit from your relationship with Silicon Valley Bank?
1: We did that helped us to facilitate relationships with um, banks at the at the very beginning of, of this process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it didn't help on the venture capital side. Uh, you know, when we first started in this industry, we went and met with a lot of individual partners at, at venture capital firms to let them know what we were doing. But we also started every meeting by saying, you know, "You're never going to invest with us. You're no, never going to invest in our company," and that that's a different type of venture capital meeting. It was much more interactive because they they knew that we weren't expecting an investment from them at the time.
0: Why was that? We
1: had those meetings because we were concerned about reputational risk. And, and we had a lot of conversations with former colleagues, colleagues with our friends and family, um, letting them know why we were doing what we were doing and how we were thinking about this industry. No partner at a venture capital firm five years ago wanted to be known as as the, the partner who made the first investment in the cannabis industry.
0: Now, what were some uh, key moves that you made or that happened out in the in the legal realm that were helpful to you?
1: I think the biggest change that happened over the the five years uh, is that in. Uh, in November of, of 2012 Washington State and Colorado legalized recreational cannabis a year later, both states opened up retail stores. That was a dramatic shift in in the environment that this was happening and the federal government wasn't stopping it. This is m- progressing at such a rapid stage that uh, I think we're I think we're past the point of, of no return I think the the toothpaste is out of the tube, and and no one can put it back in at this point.
0: You mentioned uh, things that were happen out happening outside the company. To you know, you had the wind at your, you have the wind at your back. But how about inside? You know, for example, a U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration official named Patrick Moen came on board and became your uh, chief of compliance. It's clear what those optics are, but can you speak to that further?
1: Sure. So Patrick Moen was a, a special agent in charge of a. Drug Enforcement Administration field office in in Oregon. And one day while he was driving, he heard uh, an interview with me on the radio. And uh, he had been thinking about uh, uh, cannabis prohibition and thinking about a career change. And so he uh, connected with me on LinkedIn. His profile said he was with the Department of Justice. And so I met with him Uh, very nervously, uh, at a a Starbucks in Portland, Oregon one day uh, Mm -hmm. in the summer of 2013. And, you know, went in, immediately could pick out the the DEA agent, uh, sat across from him with my coffee, and he slipped me his card. And he was with the DOJ, but he was really with the the DEA. Uh, That was my first surprise. My second surprise was when he slipped me uh, a white envelope and I thought it might be uh, something bad. Um, my adrenaline kicked in, uh, thinking that it was a subpoena or something like that. And it was his resume.
0: That measure, along with the institutional capital that came afterwards, further helped to meet your your mission, which is just adding an institutional credibility to your pursuit.
1: That's right. And so, you know, for us, it was it was very difficult to raise our initial round of capital, seven seven million dollars um in in March of 2015, we closed a, a round of, of 75 million dollars. it was a much easier round to close. the The key milestone uh, in that raise was that we, announced, who really the first uh, institutional investor to make an investment in, into this industry.
0: That institutional investor was the, the venture capital fund, the Founders Fund, uh, which is led by the PayPal founder, Peter Thiel. How did you meet Peter so, or his people?
1: It was a long process. In September of 2013, I was contacted by Jeff Lewis, one of the principals at Founders Fund. He had been looking at the industry and had come across Privateer Holdings, had come across me. He came into my office and I gave him our pitch. And that started a a 16-month process where we would meet with individuals from Founders Fund in Seattle or San Francisco or New York or in British Columbia. And ultimately, it led to an investment by them in December of 2014.
0: What about the early capital raise when you were Piecing together, uh, you know, it was a forced march and raising that initial seven million dollars. Huh.
1: It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I spoke at a, a private equity conference uh, in uh, in Europe. And the organizers did a great job of not really telling people what industry it was from. So I got on stage and, and started by saying, you know, I just closed the most difficult private equity round in the last 10 years. And about 10 minutes in, I mentioned the word cannabis for the first time. And and so I had sort of hooked them. And afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and said, I can't imagine raising any capital for cannabis companies. Yeah. And so it was, it was just... It had its own challenges.
0: Like what? What? What's one anecdote, for example, that you can remember? Being so, ruling?
1: I mean, the biggest challenge is that none of our capital could come from an institutional investor in that round. So, all of our capital, seven million dollars, came from essentially angel investors and single-family offices. And that just—it takes time. It took hundreds and hundreds of meetings to raise seven million dollars. I probably did that 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 Series A pitch close to 500 times.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a company focused on investing in opportunities related to legal cannabis for medical and recreational use. We're talking about prohibition, and this prohibition kind of echoes, in a way, the repeal of prohibition with alcohol. And there's a story of um, President Kennedy's father, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was kind of in a similar moment to you, kind of seeing the repeal coming and positioning himself in a way that he would benefit. Can you talk? Can you tell us that story?
1: Sure. So you know, when we were looking at this industry, we tried to find other similar events in history that were similar to cannabis prohibition or the end of cannabis prohibition. And so we looked at the end of alcohol prohibition in the 1930s. And we looked at, uh, there was a Canadian family, the Bromfman family, who generated significant wealth with Canadian brands uh, towards the end of alcohol prohibition. And then Joseph P. Kennedy, who positioned himself well by uh, securing European brands for sale in, in the United States as prohibition ended, And that seemed like uh, the right model. It seemed like the right strategy. And so that's that's one of the reasons why we focus on brands in the cannabis industry.
0: No, the brands that he secured, the, the licenses to were like Gordon's Gin and Dewar's Whiskey. And he was importing. It was, what was it, Somerset Importers? That yes. Was company?
1: The Bromfin family in, in Canada did something similar with Seagram's.
0: Sometimes comparisons are odious. Like, how, how is this not the repeal of alcohol prohibition?
1: I think one reason why the end of cannabis prohibition is, is different from the end of alcohol prohibition is that alcohol prohibition was relatively short. And so there was still a lot of infrastructure that was in place from you know, pre-prohibition infrastructure. In In this industry, it's really all being created from scratch. It's been well over 75 years and there aren't robust models. There, there's not robust infrastructure for the end of cannabis prohibition. All of that needs to be created.
0: I want to talk about the image of cannabis, which you're trying to, to change by bringing, you know, like this corporate responsibility to the industry, um, to this kind of wild west. Um, you hired a branding company called Heckler Associates. What are some brands that they represent?
1: They represent New Balance tennis shoes. Probably, the, they're best known for uh, Starbucks for naming Starbucks and for designing uh, the original Starbucks logo.
0: What do you want your association to be?
1: Our focus is on building companies, uh, building professional teams, building brands that can fuel change. You know what we learned as we as we looked at this industry is that this is a mainstream product consumed by mainstream people around around the world. And every brand that we looked at four years ago, five years ago, uh, really embraced the ubiquitous cliches around cannabis. And, and that was really dissimilar to the consumers that, that we saw. Um,
0: So you had this New York Times ad that kind of helped to perpetuate this new image. Can you talk about that ad?
1: Sure. So it really started as an exercise. Uh, It started as an exercise as we were working on the Leafly brand and we thought, okay, what does the first mainstream cannabis advertisement look like? You know, What would a page look like in, in the New York Times? And in July of 2014, a couple of different things happened. Governor Cuomo in New York signed the Compassionate Care Act into the law, and the following week, the editorial board for the New York Times um, endorsed the end of cannabis prohibition or legalization of cannabis. And we, we took that old ad that we had created as an exercise off the shelf. Uh, we rapidly made changes uh, and contacted the New York Times advertising section to see if they would let us uh, place an ad in, in the New York Times. And they got back to us that same day. Uh, it was far less difficult than we imagined. And we placed the ad and it was, it was really covered around, uh, covered around the world.
0: Well, what did the ad look like? What was the exercise?
1: Obviously, a New York cityscape, um, two people in front of a brownstone, one woman uh, jogging and a, a well-dressed gentleman uh, coming out of his, his brownstone apartment. And uh, it talks about the two, bra- the two strains of cannabis that they consume and why they consume them.
0: There was a, a, a New York Magazine article uh, in in the fall of 2015 talking about, you know, big cannabis. There's some public health concerns uh, with the growing legalization of the industry, how the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency and the FDA, they haven't caught up yet. And so people are using just these noxious chemicals in helping to grow the, the plant, like Avid and Floramite, for example. Um, can you speak to kind of how you're helping, if at all, to raise in that type of activity,
1: sure. Every batch of medical cannabis that we produce in Canada is tested for mold, mildew, fungus, pesticides, heavy metals. It's tested for microbials like salmonella and E. coli. You know, there's no other. There's no other country in the world, no no U.S. state that tests for all of those things. And every single batch uh, that we sell has to be tested for those things. And so. That's why, we, that's why we're interested in Canada, because it's very difficult to produce there use, under those regulations. And that uh, that process has educated us uh, so that we can operate in other countries and around, around the world and help, help create standards, help create regulations that are safer for consumers, safer for patients. I think that's the way the whole industry is, is going. Mm-hmm. I would say that every product sold you know eventually every product sold will be safer than the the glad bag that someone can can purchase on the streets of New York.
0: You live in Washington where recreational cannabis is legal. Do you smoke marijuana?
1: Uh so I grew up in San Francisco and I went to Berkeley and certainly was exposed to cannabis at an early age. You know it was not something that I took a liking to. It's something that I consume occasionally. I'm more of a single beer person on a, on a Friday night than, than cannabis.
0: You run triathlons, right?
1: Uh, I, have run, uh, I have run six Ironman uh, triathlons, yes.
0: Your wife is a ballet dancer uh, with the Pacific Northwest Ballet, and you have one daughter.
1: One daughter, Eleanor.
0: What do your parents do?
1: <laughs> um, I'm one of seven children. My mother stayed at home and raised us until I was uh, a freshman in high school. And then she went back to school. She was a, a counselor. And my father taught high school science for 38 years.
0: What kind of child were you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I was uh, the sixth of seven children. Um, we have a friend of the family who gave everyone uh, different nicknames. I was the the quiet Kennedy. We were talking about reputational risk uh, earlier, and we were talking about having conversations with friends and family. And that was actually probably one of the more difficult things that we had to do, right? I had to have a conversation with my wife and say, I'm thinking about going into the cannabis industry. And I had to have that same conversation with my six brothers and sisters uh, and with my parents who are older. They're in their 80s. They're far more... Um, you know, despite being from San Francisco, they're far more Frank Sinatra than than Grateful Dead. Uh, and that was a difficult conversation. And I had to have a conversation with my in laws, my wife's parents, in who are from from Georgia. Uh, and so there's this. Those little things that you don't think about that, Mm. you know, you you certainly cause a lot of stress as you're anticipating those conversations.
0: So it probably helped being the quiet Kennedy because inherent in that maybe is a responsible Kennedy. Uh,
1: Perhaps. You know, a lot of people were really worried that I was throwing it all away by jumping into this industry.
0: How do they feel now?
1: (laughs) A lot of people that thought we were crazy five years ago, um, uh, now they think we're a lot smarter than, than they did.
0: Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest has been Brendan Kennedy, co founder of Privateer. Coming up, we'll meet Mark Ramadan, co founder of Sir Kensingtons, a condiment company. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Mark Ramadan, co founder of Sir Kensingtons, a ketchup company. Mark and his co-founder Scott Norton thought why shouldn't there be a gourmet alternative to Heinz ketchup and started tinkering with recipes in their off-campus apartment while they were students at Brown University. Sir Kensington's was launched in 2010, and the product is available in stores throughout the United States, including Williams Sonoma, Dean & DeLuca, and Whole Foods. The product is also available in more than 500 restaurants and hotels. Sir Kensington's also makes other condiments, including mustard and mayo. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to start in September 2004 with an article written in The New Yorker magazine by Malcolm Gladwell called The Ketchup Conundrum. Basically, the gist of it was that while mustards enjoyed a variety of flavors and various companies made them, ketchup could not share that same diversity. Only Heinz had kind of this perfect blend of sweetness and sourness and bitterness and saltiness, in addition to mouthfeel, which is called umami. Can you tell me about your first encounter with that article?
2: Yeah, we had this idea of ketchup, long after that article came out. We didn't read it in 2004. We were in high school and we weren't highbrow enough. And we had this idea when we were seniors in college in two thousand eight, 2007, 2008. The article was brought to our attention. We read it and we thought it was very interesting. I think, you know, in many ways, the food world is very different than where it was in 2004. You know, in 2004, Chobani didn't exist. Coconut water didn't exist in America. You know, so many things have changed since then. So you know, when we were reading it, we had a very different perspective on what's possible. We thought that he made a lot of great points around product. Ketchup is a very nostalgic flavor. The mouthfeel, like you said, those things are really innate in people. What stood out to us is that there wasn't a lot of discussion around brand, whereas Grape Poupon really has a fantastic brand and was, uh, he, he mentions, as sort of a breakout star of the mustard category. There weren't, we didn't really perceive there to be a lot of ketchup brands that were doing something interesting in the same way.
0: He talks about this concept, amplitude, uh, which basically is a balance of flavors and that Heinz had a high amplitude. And I have to admit something embarrassing, which is that the article came out a month before I was married, and I thought when I was giving a speech at my wedding, what am I going to say? And I used this concept of amplitude about my husband in my wedding speech. It
2: sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) completely perfect. Yeah. You know, amplitude is present in everything that we eat, everything we consume, right? It's sort of, in the way that it's talked about in the article, it's sort of how how intense can the flavors be and how how often do you want to keep going back to that flavor or how long does it take you to get tired of it? Mm -hmm. And I think Coca-Cola has a lot of that, has a lot of amplitude. You don't taste one thing in Coke. You taste many things. And so for me, uh, having something that has high amplitude means it's balanced.
0: The article wasn't the germ or the inspiration for you to launch the company. How did you get the idea to start at the Ketchup Company while you were at Brown?
2: Yeah. Well, the legendary answer is uh, that we were reading about Sir Kensington in history class. And he was uh, part of the British aristocracy and quite a culinaire. And there was a long lost recipe that he had sort of helped develop after he went to a dinner party at the home of Catherine the Great. And he was served a ketchup that was subpar. So he needed to make his own. And we brought that back to life. Mm -hmm. The real story is that we had the idea to start the company just in the course of normal conversations around food. I mean, we were both, uh, I have a Lebanese and British family. He has an Armenian family. And so there was always cooking going on growing up and lots of Family feasts, and food was always a very central part of our lives, but we were both econ majors, so we were always talking about food ideas and ways to sort of find the intersection there and we were just saying how weird it was that if you go to the grocery store you're overwhelmed with choice, you know whether it 's cereal or yogurt or salsa or milk. But in this one category that is in ninety seven percent of American homes, we didn't think there was any choice uh,
0: by the way, we talk about Heinz as this you know, behemoth, incumbent. Uh, But Henry Hines was a maverick of sorts. You know, in the late 19th century, there was a preservative in ketchup called benzoate. And he contended that this was actually um, not good for your health. And he replaced the preservative with vinegar, basically pickling the tomatoes. And he won out. Uh, But it was because of his moxie that Hines was born.
2: Yeah, I I mean, the story of H.J. Hines is incredible. And mm-hmm. if you, it, we're lucky that we don't live in, in the world of the late 19th century. The food world was scary. I mean, before truth in advertising laws and before sort of mm-hmm. consumer protection, that people were putting all sorts of stuff in food, making all sorts of claims. And food was, in general, not super safe. And H.J. Hines was really one of the first entrepreneurs to take food safety very seriously. And that was the origin of the glass bottle, which was he wanted to make sure people knew that he was proud to show what was inside. And so I think that, you You know, that resonates with us.
0: Heinz is this iconic Americana brand, and you sought out to do something distinctly different by making this absurdly highbrow, making fun of yourself, but foodie-oriented condiment. When we say that you tinkered with recipes during college, tell me more about that.
2: Yeah, so it was the spring semester of our senior year. Neither of us were writing any sort of thesis, so we had plenty of time and we just started Googling ketchup recipes, and we had really no cooking background at all. I think at most I had cooked pasta in college, and Scott had probably cooked less than that, but he had an off-campus apartment with a stove. Ketchup, to make it, in theory it's easy. In practice, it was extremely difficult. We didn't even have aprons, so we cut up trash bags to use as aprons. We didn't have proper gloves, so we used oven mitts. You know, we didn't really, we didn't have any pot bigger than a saucepan, so it took us weeks and weeks and I think that off-campus apartment still smells like tomatoes. And we developed eight different recipes that we thought were pretty good. And we hosted a series of tasting parties with our friends. And and our first tasting party was the night of the biggest blizzard that Brown had seen in years. But people showed up with snow pants under their dresses, and and they helped us taste all these ketchups and give us their feedback.
0: What is a Kensington Kiss?
2: So a Kensington Kiss was the result of not having proper protection while cooking ketchup. We didn't have you know, the right aprons, gloves, or whatever. So a Kensington Kiss is what we called the burn marks on our skin when the hot tomato ketchup would boil off and splatter all over us. <laughs>
0: So this is senior year of college, and and you both went off to do different things prior to starting the company. You worked at McKinsey in New York Mm -hmm. after graduation, and Scott went on this bicycle ride throughout uh, the Middle East and Europe. At what point did you come back to this idea of starting the company?
2: As we were graduating, the idea was sort of what we thought was coming to a close. We made two formulas that we thought were great. We had a big launch party sold all the jars we made, and that was going to be it. But we had a lot of friends who were saying, this is a cool idea. You should at least keep working on it. So actually, over the course of 2008 to 2010, we worked nights and weekends on Skype and however we could get in touch, really putting all the puzzle pieces together. And then in 2010, we had gotten it to a point where we felt like it was just waiting for someone to take it over. So I quit my job in June of 2010, and he joined in October.
0: We talk about the, the legendary start of Sir Kensington's. How did you come up with the idea of being tongue in cheek and being, you know, what you called absurdly highbrow in getting the concept off the ground?
2: When I was growing up, I was always attracted to brands that had personalities. That doesn't necessarily mean literal, figurative personalities, like a you know, like a Mr. Peanut. But I think brands need to make statements, and Heinz clearly makes a statement. It stands for childhood, it stands for nostalgia, it stands for fun, and really, it stands for Americana. And we didn't want to go right up against that. And I think, you know, as much as food is about quality and taste, it's also about entertainment. So we didn't want to make anything that was too, took our, we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. So Sir Kensington evolved as this character that hearkened to British quality and British cuisine, which in some ways isn't looked at as the best cuisine in the world, but it's certainly looked at as sort of like high tea, and, you know, it's the origin of a lot of things fancy. Um, And Sir Kensington was this character that personified these sort of tongue-in-cheek ideas that you could have quality even in the lowliest of things.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a condiment company that got its start by making a ketchup that hoped to be a gourmet alternative to Heinz. What is the history of of ketchup?
2: Ketchup actually is a 500-year-old condiment. It started as a fish sauce in Southeast Asia. Mm. It's originally a Chinese word. I think it's pronounced ketsiop. And it sort of migrated with the spice trade from Southeast Asia through Central Asia. And it eventually incorporated tomatoes, which are a new world crop. The tomatoes are from Peru. The Europeans brought tomatoes back to Europe, needed a way to preserve them. And ketchup eventually made its way to America.
0: So in 2010, you and Scott decide to launch the company officially. You debuted at the Fancy Food Show. And how pivotal was that for you?
2: For us, that was that little four-foot table that I was standing behind with my sister made all the difference. That's where we met Whole Foods. That's where we met Dean and DeLuca. That's where we met Williams-Sonoma. And I think in many ways we were incredibly lucky that they stopped by because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how pricing worked. We didn't know what distribution was. I mean, we didn't even have a warehouse. The first order of product arrived at my apartment doorstep. And it was a pallet, I didn't even know what a pallet was. I was in a doorman building at the time. Doorman called and said, you have a delivery. I said, "Oh, great. You can just put it in the in the packages room." And he's like, "No, no, no. This is thousands of pounds of of I don't know what." And so I had to come back and we I sort of helped him unload it and put it all in my in my apartment. So I had a wall of ketchup in the apartment at the time.
0: What was harder for you uh, initially than you thought it might be?
2: Well, sales were hard. Still are hard. And so we were taking our cases of product door to door up and down streets of New York to places like Marie's Cheese. Um, places like the Chelsea Market, you know, but it was hard though because people are busy. They see a million products a day. It's only gotten worse. These jars of ketchup were heavy, so I had them in a roller, like a rolling suitcase, and I would pop, go into these stores, and the stores would be filled with people. It's, I mean, it's Manhattan, so there's no room for anything, and I'm in there with my suitcase, trying to get them to taste this or see this, and they, you know, they just say, "I'll leave a sample and I'll call you back." and the nice people do, but most people, even if they are nice, are too busy to call you back. Figuring out that you have to sort of be persistent while still being nice was a tricky balance to find.
0: Any interesting anecdotes about, you know, approaching Murray's Cheese or, you know, you mentioned Chelsea Market or, um, I don't know, any anything that sticks out?
2: Well, I think the first, probably the first thing is our, our our very first New York retailer was Chelsea Market Baskets, which is a store still there, great store in Chelsea Market. and. He was willing to put it up on shelf. We had most of the product in my apartment. We had some product in a warehouse near where Scott and Brandon were from in Northern California. And so our first attempt to ship, we didn't know that you had to pack glass properly. And we would get these ang- irate calls. You know, I, I have this I have a box that's bleeding ketchup. There's glass everywhere. What are you doing? And so I had to start hand delivering every week, you know, these boxes of ketchup all around the city because we had no other solution.
0: How did you finance the company in the early days?
2: In the early, early days, we put in our own money. It was it was me, Scott, Brandon, and there was a fourth partner named Wynn who was also a college friend of ours. But as soon as I decided to leave my job and do this full time, we started to raise a bit of money from family and friends. We tried to raise money from people who were not just supportive but had done something like this before so some of our investors have also invested in brands like Popchips and Fido Coco, and we've tried to raise money from people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, to the degree that we can continue to raise from people like that, that's mm-hmm. that's going to help.
0: What are some mistakes that were made that perhaps you know they they helped with?
2: It hasn't all been easy. We've made a lot of mistakes. One of those mistakes is saying yes to every store that wanted to stock us right away. It was certainly in the early days, just an amazing compliment. So we said yes to everyone. And so very quickly we had product in Arizona, in Texas, in Maine, in New York, California, all around the country. And I think the dirty secret of the food world is you have to be ready to support that. Mm. You know, it doesn't things don't just fly off the shelf. and so we we learned the hard way over the course of two years, we were getting into more and more stores. We weren't really paying attention to if once once it got on the shelf, was it getting off the shelf? Did anyone know about it? Was anyone willing to pay? And so we had to go through a period of really pulling back. And and it was actually one of our board members who has done this before, who said, you should really lean into your best customers. And for us, that was Whole Foods.
0: What are the sorts of things you did other than, you know, stand there and demo, uh, allow people to try the product?
2: Stores in many ways make their money off of vendors, not off of the people who are buying stuff in their stores. So a lot of stores, they'll charge what are called slotting fees, which are, you know, you have to pay just a flat fee to get your product on the shelf. But then to move it, you can do things like demos, but also anytime you walk into a store and you see a display, you know, at the end of an aisle or sort of by checkout, that's usually paid for. And so being able to, uh, to have that kind of placement makes you a little more attractive, certainly more visible, because it's also on sale. We found that that's the biggest. That has the biggest impact on sales and also hardest to get because mm. everyone's done this math, everyone wants those kinds of displays.
0: Do you have any better answers for why Heinz dominated the market for so long other than this amplitude answer that Malcolm Gladwell has?
2: I think that Heinz built their brand brilliantly by being ubiquitous. You know, something like 70 to 75% of all ketchup is consumed in food service, not in retail. So food service is basically anywhere you get ketchup for free. Restaurants, hotels, travel, schools, whatever. And it's usually Heinz. And so when you go to buy ketchup at home, you're going to buy what you're familiar with. And so for us, from the very, very beginning, it was always about how do we work with restaurants? And how do we be omnipresent?
0: You're in more than 500 restaurants uh, across the United States. What are one or two stories uh, about getting the ketchup, getting your ketchup into one of those restaurants?
2: Our big break, I would say, on the restaurant side is working with P.J. Clark's. I mean, they're an institution for burgers and they've been serving the burgers since 1884 with Heinz. I mean, the chef, his name is Mike Defonso, phenomenally nice guy, very busy guy. And this was really our first lesson in how to sell in restaurants. There's no sort of process there. So we showed up, he tasted it, he said it was great, said he would call us, didn't call us, busy guy. So actually for like four months straight, we would just keep showing up at his doorstep. And he would always laugh and he'd say, you guys, what do you want again? And then eventually he said, I wanna do it, but my boss won't let me, the owner, this guy, Phil Scotty. Um, and then, you know, for another six months, we were going back and uh, over and over, trying to get a meeting with him kept getting blown off, blown off, blown off. And then finally, he allowed us five minutes in his office. And the first thing he said to us, and he was this, like, legendary guy in our life, right? Almost a year trying to reach this man, Phil. Uh, he turns to us and he says, you are the most persistent guys I have ever met. What do you have for me? And so we, we told him our story very briefly, and he was a smoker at the time. Um, and we gave him an, uh, an engraved Zippo lighter with P.J. Clark's on it. And it was really sort of the way to his heart. And we're now very close to him and his wife, Thea, who's been like a godmother to us. And Mm. it it all happened. And it was all because it was non-traditionally persistent.
0: I noticed that you're married. You have a ring. Uh, When did that happen?
2: Well, what's funny is I spent 2008 to 2010 at McKinsey desperately trying to find a girlfriend. And I couldn't. Uh, And the moment that I quit to start Sir Kensington's, I decided now I really should be single so I can really focus my time on building Sir Kensington's. And then at the Fancy Food Show, I met Rachel, who is now my wife.
0: What was she doing at the Fancy Food Show?
2: At the time, she was a partner at a design firm. Hmm. And so they were looking at packaging and trying to find cool, interesting new clients. And she and her boss had stopped by. They were too expensive for us, so we started dating instead. (laughs) And, And now we're married.
0: What might I not know about you? What do you enjoy doing outside of work?
2: Well, I love spending time with Rachel. I also love cocktail culture. Um, I I was very briefly a bartender in a, at a bar downtown called White Star. And I learned how to uh, chisel ice from Sasha Petrosky, who's the founder of Milk and Honey, the seminal sort of pre-Prohibition or Prohibition-style cocktail bar in New York. And I started doing these bar nights in my apartment. While I was at McKinsey, the whole idea was to create a space that was fun and was lubricated, but not insane. You know, wasn't sort of a ten shots for five dollars kind of place, and and but also not the kind of place where you had to whisper. And over time, it it took on sort of a life of its own, and I created a menu, and people were bringing people I had never met before, and it got up to something like forty people, and I had almost a hundred bottles of liquor in my apartment, and it lasted for almost a year, and it was called and it had a name. It was called Mark Bar. I have plans to have sort of an underground bar component to Rachel's Cafe when it finally launches.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.